Hello and welcome. I'm Frank Lavallo and this is Novel Conversations. Today I'm going to have a conversation about the novel How Green Was My Valley by Richard Llewellyn. And I'm joined in my conversation by our Novel Conversations readers, Joan and Patrick Andrews. Joan, Patrick, hello. Hello, Frank. Hello, Frank. Joan, Patrick, before we get started on our conversation about the novel How Green Was My Valley by Richard Llewellyn, let me read a brief summary that I wrote about today's novel. Published in 1939, How Green Was My Valley is the story of the Morgan family, a coal mining family in the coal valleys of South Wales, as told to us by the youngest son, Hugh Morgan. It is also the story of a time, and most definitely a story of a place. But the times are changing, changes that affect the entire Morgan family and their beloved Green Valley. From family love to family betrayal, from union makers to union breakers, Richard Llewellyn gives us a beautiful and lyrical novel about family, struggle, love, and life in the green valleys of his youth. With that brief introduction, Joan, let me ask you, is this the first time you read How Green Was My Valley? Well, yes and no. I first read it a couple months ago, and so I thought I was ready for this discussion, but then I thought about it and realized a lot of the details had escaped me because I was just lost in the beautiful telling of this beautiful story. It really is one of the most beautiful sounding and reading novels I've ever read. And that's why it was particularly shocking to me when I reread it and realized how much pain is in this book right from the very beginning. Perhaps some of the most brutal passages in some of the most beautiful language. Mm -hmm. Patrick, let me ask you, is this the first time you read How Green Was My Valley? Yes, it was. I guess I would agree with both of your assessments. It is sort of a melancholy book, but it's not sad or depressing. Well, it's a little sad. Well, sure. I mean, life is sad. There are sad moments. But really, it's just a beautifully written story. The exact place and even the exact time are never really given to us. We surmise it's about turn of the century, late 1800s, early 1900s. Right. There's a mention at one point in the story of Queen Victoria's Jubilee, which occurred in 1887. All right, Joan, as I mentioned in my introductory remarks, this novel is narrated by Hugh Morgan, the youngest son in the Morgan family. Tell me a little bit about you when we first meet him. Well, actually, when we meet him, he's in his mid-60s, but he's at his boyhood home about to leave it forever. And he's reminiscing about his childhood in this valley. That's right. Within the first page, he remembers something from when he was about six years old, and we're off on this story. Well, what's interesting about his memories are we really get them not as a 60-year-old looking back, but we get them the way a child of that age would remember things. And the opening pages are really the happiest times in the book because I think Hugh is a young boy, and he's unaware of all the concerns of the real world, which become more apparent as the story goes on. We sort of get them in impressionistic moments. And you get a picture of family life. It was certainly a home where children, regardless of their age, do not speak until they're spoken to. But as we're getting these recollections, we're also coming quickly to understand that things have changed. We realize right away that the slag from the coal mines... Essentially what's left after you remove coal. Right, has been piling up on the mountainside for decades instead of being disposed of underground. And it's literally overtaking their valley. Well, Patrick, once we get some of these impressionistic moments from Hugh Morgan, he then comes to the marriage of his eldest brother, Ivor. Well, Bronwyn, Ivor's wife, is really the love of Hugh's life even though she's 11 years older than Hugh. And he falls in love with her when he's six. Immediately. But there's other brothers in this family, and actually a couple of girls. Do you want to run down that Morgan family for me? Sure. We have Ivor. He's the oldest son. And Davy, Yanto, Gwillem, Owen. Of course, there's Hugh. And he has two older sisters, Caridwin and Ankarad. All the boys 
currently are working in the mines with their dada, their dad. And as the story opens, it's good times. Well, at the time we meet this family, there's five breadwinners all contributing to the family coffers. That's right. You get a sense early on that Mr. Morgan, the father, is somewhat of a leader in the community. Among the miners, he's respected. He's what's known as a checker. He's outside the pits and the mines, and he checks the little railroad cars of coal that come out. It's his determination that determines how much the men are paid according to how much coal they mine. So he holds a very important position among the miners. These men are trusting him to essentially determine their wages. Right, so he's trusted and respected in his community. The boys, on the other hand... Well, the boys sense that there's injustice in the way they're being paid, and they want the men to stand up for themselves. Right. Davy, in particular, is sort of agitating for a union. Their wages, if not going down, they're being threatened. Even though they're still producing as much coal as they always have. Right. Some steel workers in a nearby valley have been thrown out of work, so that sort of floods the labor pool. So all of a sudden, the mine owners say, well, we don't have to pay so much because if you don't want to work for it, we can find these out-of-work men. Essentially, the steel workers come over and, and undercut the wages of the coal miners, but they need a job. Right, exactly. Right, and that's how Dada sees it. Of course, he doesn't like that their wages are being cut, but he thinks if they all continue to work and work hard and get paid, it will all work itself out. Well, he's not a believer in agitation. The father's a believer in compromise, in common sense. He says, if we have a problem with the mine owners, let's go talk to them. Of course, they're going to want to make it right. But Davy and then soon his brother Owen are totally opposed to this idea of their father. And that starts a little trouble between them. Patrick, this disagreement between Dada and Davy about labor struggles in the coal mine really comes to a head after the first strike at the mine. That's right. The sons are upset because Mr. Morgan, in the aftermath of a brief strike, the mine owners have removed a shed from him that he would stand underneath while he counted this coal. So he's now got to stand out in the rain and the snow. Which understandably infuriates his sons. Right. And of course, the father doesn't want that to be an issue in a new strike or further labor unrest. He said, men are not going to go out on strike and their families and their children are not going to go hungry over me. I won't have that on my conscience. That's right. And of course, his sons believe that you have to fight these things. And it comes to a head at the dinner table one day when Owen speaks out of turn. Owen refers to the men who are meekly taking this sort of treatment and saying that they are all fools. And that pretty much stunned everyone. Right. And keep in mind that Owen is not a child. You know, he's an adult working in the coal mines. And then his father says, and what do you know about the subject? I am very sorry I was rude, Dada, Owen said. But the way they were working the coal now is not only stupid but criminal. And it actually comes out how Owen and Davy and even Gwillem have been getting this information about the unions. It comes out they've been going to meetings up on the mountain. Right. And we know this because a little earlier we had read about little Hughes sneaking out one night to go to one of these clandestine meetings up in the mountains. And Mr. Morgan doesn't necessarily disagree with what Owen and the boys are saying. But he says to them that they must learn manners, speak when you are asked and not before. And Owen responds, I will speak against anything I know to be wrong. Not in this house, my father said, and that is enough from you. In this house or outside, Owen said, wherever there is wrong, I will speak against it. Leave the table, my father said. I will leave the house, said Owen. And then, of course, this emboldens his brother Gwillem, who stands up and says, Dada, if Owen's leaving, I'm leaving too. Mom is weeping. Mom is trying to get Davy to talk some sense into them because, after all, they're just following your lead. But the three brothers are pretty strong-minded about this, and they leave. But, Joan, it's not only the boys that walk out. Right. Their sisters want to go with them because, well, someone's got to cook for them and clean for them. 
So Angarad and Keridan go with him. And actually, it's the daughters leaving that is one straw too many for Dada and Mom. She insists that her husband go and get those girls back tonight, and then hopefully get those boys back as quick as possible, too. And Patrick, Dada does come up with an interesting idea to get the boys back. His rationale is sort of sad, really. He says, I would have you back, but only on one condition. What is that, Dada? asked Davy. We are all to be lodgers here, said my father. He's going to be lodgers with his children? Right. When the sons say, how are you a lodger? He says, because I am staying here, but I am not a father, because I have no authority. No man shall say he is a father of a house unless his word is to be obeyed. And I thought this was terribly sad when I first read it, but he manages to remain their father. That's right. While I agree with both of you that it was sort of a depressing, sad solution, I also thought of it as kind of an elegant solution because he does get all his sons back in the house. And as we do come to know as we read the novel, he regains that parental authority over his sons. And they more than willingly let him have it back. It's sort of a way for everyone to save face. Well, Patrick, while this may be the end of the family strife for a little while, the labor strife is continuing. But even in the middle of all this labor trouble, Dada gets a promotion. That's right. There's been a death of one of the mine supervisors, and Mr. Morgan is promoted to that position. So he's now seen as being sort of in the management. And of course, this immediately causes problems for his agitating sons. Right. Davy tells them that the other men think that because he got this job that he's gone over to management, and now they don't trust him, this man who's worked so long and so hard for and with them. But Joan, it's gone beyond just not trusting him. Unfortunately, Davy's been hearing death threats against Dada. But what must be more frustrating is what Davy thinks about why his father got this promotion. And Patrick, what was that? Well, as a labor leader, Davy thinks that his father's promotion was just a way to sort of embarrass him and undermine Davy's union organizing. Which, of course, infuriates his mother. There is nonsense, boy. You are like a lot of children with you. There is no better man in all the valleys. If you do grow up to be one like him, God will smile indeed. Right, and he recounts to her that the men are becoming ugly and dangerous, and that if Davy had not been strict with them, said Owen, they would have been put over the bridge days ago. But Joan, Mom doesn't even wait for Davy to act. She takes matters into her own hands. She confronts these men herself. And this is quite a story. Oh, yes, it is. She had heard of these clandestine meetings. How do moms always know that stuff? <laughs> and she knew that Hugh had snuck out of the house to go to one of these meetings. So she goes to Hugh that night and says to him, you will take me up the mountain tonight so that I may talk to those men. And Hugh is astonished, but he has to do what his mother asks of him. Right, and they're going up this mountain at night in a driving snowstorm. And Patrick, remember, you was only six or seven when this is happening. That's right. And then, Joan, what happens when Mom gets up to that mountain and confronts these men at their union meeting? These stunned men. She stands up and says to them, knowing that her oldest sons are in this crowd, You are a lot of cowards to talk against my husband. He has done nothing against you, and he never would. And you know it well. He is the superintendent of the colliery now because every man will have his reward for working, and that is his. And for you to think that he is with the owners because he has had his reward is not only nonsense, but downright wickedness. She continues, But there's one thing more I will say, and that is this. If harm do come to my Gwillem, I will find out the men and I will kill them with my hands. And that I swear by God Almighty. And there will be no hell for me. Nobody will go to hell for killing lice. And it doesn't stop there. Davy turns to her and says, Mama, I am not your mother, she said, when you are with these. You are lice with them. And if your father comes to harm, you shall be the first to go. 
Then poor little Hugh, whose mind is reeling, now has to take his mother back down the mountain. And this journey down does not end well. No. It gets colder and colder, and his mother gets stiffer and stiffer, and he's doing all that he can to keep her going. Right, and they've lost the path down the mountain. But Patrick, they do eventually find the bridge over the river. They just don't get over the bridge. Hugh's mother is now almost completely incapacitated. She's fallen down. He can't get her up. And she is sliding down the riverbank into the river. And Hugh realizes that he's not going to be able to pull her back up. So he does the only thing he can think of to do, which is to jump into the river. In the winter. So that he can sort of stand there and just try and keep his mother from sliding into the river. And pray that somebody comes along. Right, but he doesn't know how long he can stand in this freezing river. He knows the men are going to be coming down off that mountain eventually, and they are going to have to cross the bridge over the river. If he can somehow catch their attention, he and his mom might get saved. The next thing he remembers is waking up in his bed at home. And quite a few things have changed. Well, perhaps the most important change is he's got a little sister. Right, we learned that one of the reasons for his mother's difficulty coming down the mountain was that she was about nine months pregnant at the time. And we never knew that. Because, of course, Hugh was telling us the story as a six or seven-year-old. And it's this event with his mother, though, that really sets up Hugh's life for the next four or five years. Right. Because of the events of that night, he is bedridden. And actually, that turns into a pretty interesting literary device for our author, because he now can put you in a cupboard bed in the middle of the family living room so you is now privy to everything that happens to this family, whether they want him to know about it or not. That's right. And Joan, tell me about one of the first things he learns while lying in his curtained bed. Well, he learns that his brother Owen is in love with Margaret. Now tell me who Margaret is. Margaret is the young woman who came to the house to take care of the house when Mama was recuperating upstairs. But the course of love between Owen and Margaret doesn't really run very smooth, does it? No, they run into some trouble on the day that they're celebrating Mama's recovery. Yeah, so at the party, Owen and Margaret have been discovered in the shed kissing. Discovered by her father. Right, and of course, Mr. Morgan smiles at this and says, well, glad I am. I will be very happy to have Margaret in the family. But Patrick, it seems strange. Everyone seems happy but Owen. Yes, it turned out that Owen didn't like being told what to do, even if it was something that he wanted to do himself. Right. So Owen refuses to speak to Margaret again. But of course, the public shame is still out there for Margaret. So their brother Gwillem steps up and marries Margaret. Because there has to be a marriage. Right. Joan, does a marriage that happens that quickly work out? Well, this one does not. And it has a sad ending a little bit later because, of course, Margaret never got over Owen. And it drove her crazy in the end. She literally went mad pining away for Owen. Yeah. Sad ending. It was. All right, but let's get back to you stuck in this bed in the middle of the Morgan house, privy to everything that's going on. Not only is his school teacher coming to visit on a daily basis, but his brothers and his father read to him and with him. In fact, one of their favorite volumes is Boswell's Life of Johnson. That's right. You talks a lot about learning from Dr. Johnson and learning from Mr. Boswell. And not right. just learning, but laughing. He that's says right. at some point they had to put the book down because it hurt Hugh to laugh so much. That's right. Joan, he's also getting a lot of visits from the new preacher in town. That's right. 
Mr. Griffith is the new preacher in town, and from almost the first moment he met him back at Mama's recovery party, he was determined to get Hugh back on his feet. In fact, he issues you a challenge and says, by next spring, you and I are going up the mountain and we're going to look at daffodils. He sure does. And Hugh is so anxious to meet this goal, he immediately puts a pair of clothes under his pillow mm-hmm. to have them ready for the day he gets out of that bed. Yeah. Well, tell me, do they make it up that mountain in the oh, spring to see the daffodils? They sure do. It was a painful experience for Hugh, but it's the push that he needs, and Hugh does get back on his feet because of Mr. Griffith. They come to almost like an uncle-nephew relationship. Yes, Mr. Griffith becomes sort of a special family friend to the Morgans and regularly has dinner with them. So now what for you? Well, Mr. Morgan says that he should head off to the National School. He's got to walk over to the next valley. And he'll be the first in his family, really, to go to a formal school. Right, so you get the first hint that the father has a little different hope for Hugh's future. That's right. Not only does Dada realize that his son, Hugh, has some special abilities, but Dada can see the future coming to the mines, and things are not going to be good there, and he wants his son out of it. Right. So Hugh goes to school. It didn't work out very well at first, did it? Hugh and his family speak Welsh. Whereas in school, you have to speak English. That's right. This is an English national school. That's right. There's definitely a culture class between the Welsh and the English. And actually, this is a culture clash not only between you and some of the students, but you has a problem with one of the teachers as well. Right. The teacher in his form or his grade, Mr. Jonas, oh, Mr. Jonas. does not care for Welsh being spoken in school. And in the very first day, Hugh not only has a problem with his teacher, but with most of his fellow students who pick on him. And we have to remember that Hugh is, at this point, somewhat of a sickly child. He's a perfect target for some of the bullies in school. Well, Joan, how does the Morgan family react to you coming home from his first day at school, battered and bruised and beaten up? His father and brothers take him out into the backyard and begin to teach him how to fight. In fact, his brother Davey takes it a step further and introduces Hugh to some pretty big, stocky buddies of his, Di and Kafartha. And these two gentlemen meet Hugh on the mountain at 4 a.m. on a regular basis to teach him how to fight. These are two professional prize fighters, Di and Kafartha. And actually, they become two of my favorite characters in the novel. Yep, they've got a lot of character. Well, Patrick, we know that you learned to write real well, and we know he's a great student. How does he take to learning boxing? He learns pretty well, and he decides one day that he's going to call out his chief nemesis, Mervyn Phillips. Sort of a leader among the other boys. That's right. Of course, they're caught fighting by Mr. Jonas. And Mr. Jonas had a punishment ready for Hugh. Patrick, what happened to you? He's viciously whipped by Mr. Jonas in front of the entire class. Until Jonas is exhausted. Exactly, and Hugh takes this without making a sound. And that's when he earned respect from his peers. Well, Patrick, I'm sure these weren't the kind of injuries Dada expected you to come home with. No, these are not the honorable marks of an honest fight. And actually, it's the next morning that Diane Kafartha decided to pay a social call on Mr. Jonas. A social call nobody would ever want to receive. (laughs) Right. They're going to administer a little bit of valley justice. Yes, they are. And Mr. Jonas does not take his beating like a man. But he does get a beating. And he ends up stuffed in a coal bin. It's one of the reasons I really like these two guys. (laughs) Right. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.
But this beating actually brings a new friend for Hugh. And who's that? Kynwin Phillips, Mervyn's sister, who, like the boys, has found a whole new respect for Hugh Morgan. But her feelings run a little bit deeper than respect. (laughs) You're right, they do. Are we going to have another wedding on the mountain? Well, we'll see. All right, well, I can wait. Let's leave you and his love interest aside for a moment. What else is going on in the valley at this time? Well, times have continued to be tough in the valley and the mines. And in fact, the men have just gone out and strike for minimum wage. And this strike is a long one. As Llewellyn writes, then the children began to die. And more and more children were dying. And now women were dying. And men, no more were coffins built. A sheet had to do. Even Davy says that they will have to give in. That's right. As Dada says, we will have less, but we have fixed a limit to the less. It has been signed and it will be made law. Back to work, men. And there's much rejoicing at this point because, well, at least they know what they're going to get and they can work and feed their families again. There was one good thing to come out of this strike, other than the minimum wage. These people in the Valley, they sing. They sing at their holiday celebrations. They sing at their parties. And, of course, they sing in church. And during the strike, Mr. Griffith really organized the choir and put Ivor in charge. They gather members from all the valleys. And they turn out to be so good that they get a royal command from the queen to come perform for her. And they go. They sure do. Well, Joan, with things relatively peaceful at the mines in the valley, tell me what's going on with some of the other Morgan family members. Well, of course, the boys are continuing in their union agitations, but they're also falling in love, and so are the girls. Tell me about a couple of them. Well, Angerad comes up with the first match, although it's not really the match that she would have liked. Well, Patrick, who is she involved with, and who would she rather be involved with? Well, she ends up marrying Ischian, who is the son of the owner of the coal mine. But we learn that she really has been in love with Mr. Griffith, the pastor. But he believes that he is too old for her. By at least 20 years. That's right, and too poor to support her. Well, he is a minister. That, of course, would not deter Angerard, who is in love with him, but he pushes her away. Right, but she thought she had to get married, and so she married Ischian in London and are gone for years. But then there are some happy marriages that come about. For instance? Hugh's sister Carradine finds a husband in Blithen, and Davy finds a wife in a girl named Wynne. And their marriage is quite a celebration in town as they have a double wedding. Which provides Hugh his opportunity to get his first suit and long trousers. Nice. He's finally a man. And speaking of you as a man, who's you got his eye on? Well, Hugh actually didn't have his eye on anyone. All right, let me rephrase that. Who has her eye on you? (laughs) Kynwin Phillips has not forgotten about Hugh, and she manages to get herself invited to this wedding of his brothers, much to Hugh's consternation. Sure, he doesn't want to take ribbing from his brothers. But he does take her invitation to go up the mountain. He does. And that's where Hugh discovers the joy of a kiss. But before he can discover any other joys, he sees the torches coming up the mountain. Torches? It turns out that Kynwin's horse had not been tied up and had gone home without her, which sends her family... And every man in town... Right, into the mountains looking for her. And Patrick, they know if they're found together on the mountain, there'll be trouble. And Kynwin and Hugh make a very narrow escape. It's quite an adventurous escape, and the townspeople never know who was on the mountain with Kynwin. All right, well, Patrick, now that we know how things are going in Hugh's love life, how are things going back at the school? He continues to have a problem with his old nemesis, Mr. Jonas. Even though Mr. Jonas isn't even teaching Hugh anymore, he's teaching the kindergartners. That's right, and one day out in the schoolyard, Hugh sees a kindergarten-age girl being forced to walk through the schoolyard with this heavy slate hanging around her neck by a cord. And the slate is cutting and bruising her legs. Right, and chalked on the slate by Mr. Jonas was, I must not speak Welsh in school. 
and Hugh goes into a sort of blind rage. And the next thing he knows, he's sitting between two policemen who are pretty much telling him what he did to Mr. Jonas. But much to Hugh's relief, even the policeman wasn't that upset. (laughs) But the result of this is that Hugh is expelled from school and will have to go to work. Joan, in fact, he goes to work with Ivor in the mine. Yes, he does. And he's proud of working with Ivor. And he feels like a man. He's even seeing Kynwin again. But Patrick, this time they tie up the mare. And they're not interrupted. Right. And now Hugh thinks he's in love. Which works out well for Kynwin because she quickly convinces him to take her to see a play. (gasps) A stage show? Right. A scandalous activity. So scandalous it actually gets raided by the authorities while they're there. That's right. And another adventurous escape for Kynwin and Hugh, except they don't escape together. Kynwin runs off with that acting troupe and is never heard from again. And Hugh learns that it's not just long pants that make you a man. And unfortunately, he's about to learn a lot more about a man's life and death down in those mines. Well, Joan, what happens in the mine? There's an accident, and Ivor is killed. Only a month after the birth of his second son. Leaving his wife, Bronwyn, a 25-year-old widow with two children. And when Mama realizes that, she sends Hugh to live with Bron as the man in her house. Of course, this just brings to a head Hugh's lifelong love, really, of Bronwyn. Now even Bronwyn seems to be aware of his feelings for her. And it's a little different now because Hugh is no longer a child. But Hugh quickly realizes that much of Bron's affection for Hugh is based on how he reminds her of Ivor. Much to Hugh's disappointment, really. Right. Hugh realizes that it's never really going to be fair to either of them to try to make something more of this relationship. But they do live a happy life together. Yes, they do. And I want to talk a little bit more about the life they have together, but I think we'll take a break here, and when we come back, we'll finish telling the tale of the Morgan family and see how our novel comes to its end. Right now, you're listening to Novel Conversations. Today, I'm having a conversation about the novel How Green Was My Valley by Richard Llewellyn. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Frank Lavallo, and today I'm having a conversation about the novel How Green Was My Valley by Richard Llewellyn. And I'm joined in my conversation by our Novel Conversations readers, Joan and Patrick Andrews. All right, Joan, Patrick, before we took our last break, we mentioned that Ivor had been killed in a mine collapse. And now you has gone to live with his sister-in-law, Bronwyn, in order to be her breadwinner in that house. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the slag heaps keep growing in the valley, but the Morgan family does get some good news. Angharad comes back to town. That's right, Frank, but it's not all good news. Angharad's marriage to Istian is not working out well. So Angharad is back in the valley alone. Well, Patrick, is Mr. Griffith glad to have her back? Yes, he appears to be. And in fact, Angharad and Mr. Griffith spend some considerable time together, which starts the gossips in town talking. And the gossip continues down in the mines. Right, and one of the coal miners says something about Angharad to Hugh, and Hugh lays him out. Hugh's become quite a little fighter, hasn't he? That's right, and that effectively puts an end to Hugh's days working down in the mine and his attentions turn to carpentry work. Okay, well, I'm glad you has finally found his vocation, but let's get back to Mr. Griffith and Engerhard. What's going on with them? Were they having an affair? Certainly, Hugh begins to question whether it's proper, the relationship between his sister and Mr. Griffith. And people are really talking. Yes, but it's Bron who chastises Hugh for believing this gossip. Because Bron makes Hugh confront the gossip about the two of them. There's gossip about them? Well, of course. Hugh, a grown man now, living with Bronwyn all these years. Bronwyn says to him, you are doing what Mr. Griffith has been doing and sleeping in the house too. Would you like others to talk about you? Like sunlight coming to the blind for Hugh. That's right. Well, Joan, you comes to see the situation differently, but the town does not. 
and eventually this gossip drives both Angerod and Mr. Griffith away. Right. And Joan, Patrick, it's right about this time that union troubles start up again, and it starts with Davy. The mine now tries to pay him below the agreed-to minimum wage. Right. He actually had been working the night shift, and when he got his check, they had paid him less, saying that he was an incompetent worker and not deserving of the minimum. So are we going to have another strike? No, Davy this time, takes him to court. That's right. They have that minimum wage law now. That's right. Clearly, this seems to be a case of retaliation for Davy's years of union organizing. But fortunately for Davy, he has every pay stub from his first day in the mine, proving that he had been an excellent miner. Sure, he could turn to his pay stub and say, hey, three weeks ago, they paid me a full wage. Three months ago, they paid me a full wage. They must have thought I was competent then. So Davy wins the case, but decides that he can no longer make a life for himself here in the valley. And quickly, he's off to New Zealand. And Davy's not the only member of the Morgan family that decides it's time for him to leave the valley now. Yanto is going to be off to Germany. And we should mention that Owen and Gwillem have already left, and they've headed to America to try to find their fortune. That's right. Well, Patrick, all these leavings must have devastated Ma and Dada Morgan. That's right. But as Hugh recalls, it was a blessing that Yanto and Davy went then, for they would have been in trouble, sure, if they had waited for the end of the year. Well, what happens at the end of the year? Well, there's going to be another strike. But this time, and maybe because the Morgan boys are not there to lead things, this strike is going to be ugly and mean. That's right. And Patrick, the reason it's become vicious is now the union is sending in professional agitators and actually communists are coming in and they're destroying property. These outside agitators don't care if this mine exists. Once they destroy this mine, they're off to the next mine. They're not going back to work in this mine. So the result is the remaining Morgans, Hugh and his father, are in the position of trying to protect their mine because they know they need this mine to go back to work to. It's almost now that they're opposing the union. Right. The outside strikers are trying to flood the mine, and Hugh and his father and Di and Kafartha are trying to protect the mine. Right. Hugh and Di and Kafartha are actually sort of holed up in the manager's offices trying to fight back the crowd and maintain the pumps and the controls of the mines. Mr. Morgan has actually been going down into the mines, checking water levels. Well, Patrick, in the end, they're able to prevent the mine from actually being completely flooded. But not without a cost. The flooding had washed out some of the supports down in the mines where Dada, where Mr. Morgan, was surveying. And he and Kafartha have been buried in the mine. And Hugh and Dai and some other men have to go down looking for them. Llewellyn writes, Then we came to the trouble. The roof had fallen. And then Hugh tells us, With fright chewing holes in me, and my mouth dry and trembling, I went at it with the pick, and die doing the work of three beside me. Well, do they find Kafartha and Dada? Well, they do. Kafartha barely but alive, but Dada is trapped. And not only is he trapped by the rocks, but any attempt to move him will probably bring the roof down atop of him. And not only Hugh sees that, but Dada does too. He saw it too, and his head shook gently, and his eyes closed. And Hugh knows that these are the last moments of his father's life. So I crawled beside him and pulled away the stone from under his head and rested him in my lap. Air rushed from his throat and blew dust from his tongue. And I heard his voice, and in that strange noise I could hear, as from far away, the voice of men of the valley singing a plain amen. So I closed his eyes and shut his jaw and held him tight to me. And his bristles were sharp in my cuts. And I was heavy with love for him as he had been, and with sadness to know him gone. And then he said to one of the other men in the tunnel, We can move the rocks now, Willie. My daughter is dead. Right. And Willie the miner said, Good little man he was. And Joan, Patrick, it's with this last memory 
that you ends his recollections of his life and his family and takes us back to his present. That's right. As the book opened, he's standing in his childhood home, and he's thinking, 30 years ago, but as fresh and as near as now. No bitterness is in me to think of my time like this. Hugh Morgan I am, and happy inside myself, but sorry for what is outside. An age of goodness I knew, and badness too, mind. But more of good than bad, I will swear. At least we knew good food and good work and goodness in men and women. And he goes on, But you have gone now, all of you, that were so beautiful when you were quick with life, yet not gone, for you are still a living truth inside my mind. So how are you dead, my brothers and sisters, when you live with me as surely as I live myself? And even as the slag heaps continue to grow, you's final memories are, how green was my valley then, and the valley of them that have gone. And it's with those lines that our novel, How Green Was My Valley by Richard Llewellyn, ends. Right. Now, of course, Joan, Patrick, we haven't had a chance to talk about all the characters in our novel or to get to all the moments in our novel. So if you have a character you want to mention or a quote you want to read, now's your opportunity. Joan, do you have something? Well, so many things are talked about. Even if it's not a whole event in the book, there's just beautiful observations on things. And this is one of my favorites. It was kind of early on. And he's talking about change that has come to his valley. And one of the changes was when electric light came to the valley and how that caused a change. Llewellyn writes, Gaslight, when it came, made people want to read less, for comfort perhaps. And electric light sent them to bed earlier because it was dearer. But when did people stop being friends with their mothers and fathers and itching to be out of the house and going mad for other things to do? I cannot think. (laughs) It is like an asthma that comes on a man quickly. He has no notion how he had had it, but there it is, and nothing to cure it. So it's little passages like that that really take you back to another time. A time when the valley was green. Right. Patrick, do you have something? I do, Frank. There was a passage where Llewellyn has a scathing indictment of gossips. And as you recall, it was gossip that ran Mr. Griffith and Angerard out of the valley. He writes, May all such end their days soonest with cancers of the misused tongue and all the vitals and perish with the special torments of the damned and pass without hurry into hell and lie upon the hottest grid through all eternity with water only an inch beyond reach and the green pastures of paradise always clear in their sight. That is a good one. I want to mention two characters that we didn't get a chance to talk about, two tailors that make you his first suit, Tum and Huiffa, two tailors who work together but you would have sworn these were two 80-year-old women the way they kept sniping at each other and picking at each other. Right, and what about the tea? Almost every occasion there was tea. Well, don't forget, they're sort of carrying on some English traditions. Absolutely, and he writes about tea so beautifully. There is good a cup of tea is when you are feeling low. Every part of you inside you that seems to have gone to sleep comes lively again. A good friend of mine is a cup of tea indeed. Indeed. And Llewellyn has some great insights into human nature. Here's one passage. Whatever is said to the contrary, I am ready to swear that green and red lights are set in the brain, and you will have a flash of red when you are going into danger. The red inside of me was set stone still at danger whenever I thought of kind one. (laughs) Why, I cannot say, but it was, and I was sure something was going to happen, and I have never been so right. You know, I think I've seen some of those red lights. I just wish I'd (laughs) obeyed them all. All right, there was another great passage. Oh, there are so many. Hugh has sort of surreptitiously witnessed the birth of a neighbor child. So his father has taken him aside to have a little talk with him. He says, There is no room for pride in any man, 
As you saw today, so come the captains and the kings and the tinkers and the tailors. Let the memory direct your dealings with men and women. Now you know what hurt it brings to women when men come into the world. Remember and make it up to your mama and to all women. And Frank, I'd like you to read one of my favorite lines that I think it'll be better coming from you. It's about you now a little more grown up after seeing that birth experience and appreciating a woman in bronze. Joan, I know exactly what lines you're talking about. Let me read them. There is a wholeness about a woman, of shape and sound, and color and taste and smell, a quietness that is her, that you will want to hold tightly to you, all, every little bit, without words, in peace, for jealousy for the things that escape the clumsiness of your arms, so you feel when you love. So I felt for Bronwyn, but I never told her. I thought that was so beautiful. And pretty sad. Yeah. All right, now, Frank, your favorite line? It's just one sentence, and I hope it gives our listeners just a small taste of the lyrical quality of the writing in this novel. Singing was in my father as sight is in the eye. As the people of the valley would say, there is good were those nights indeed. That's right. And with the music of the valley still in our ears, let's end today's conversation about the novel, How Green Was My Valley by Richard Llewellyn. Joan Patrick, I want to thank you both for coming in and having this conversation with me today. You're welcome. You're welcome, Frank. Joining me now for endnotes on today's conversation is our researcher, Ted Schwartz. Hello, Ted. Hi, Frank. Ted, I guess this novel, How Green Was My Valley, really proves the old writer's adage that you should write what you know. And clearly Llewellyn went back to his boyhood and wrote his story. Yep. Good old Richard David Vivian Llewellyn Lloyd, born in Hendon, London. But wait, our Green Valley was not in London. Our Green Valley was in Wales. This time, you're dealing with a different adage, one that's often said by writers versus writing teachers, which is write what you can learn. So, Ted, let's be clear here. This valley that Richard Llewellyn wrote about, this life, the Morgan family, none of this existed? This came out of his imagination? Yes, he spent very little time in Wales. He did have a grandfather who was a miner, who he visited such a short period of time that really didn't do anything. Where this came from was his interviewing people who lived that kind of life. And from his imagination, with that background, he created a story that for the world seemed like the boyhood of a Welshman who grew up in the mines and wrote. Ted, let me take one more stab at this. I'm pretty sure that I read his biography in the back of our novel, and it said he was from Wales. His biography was as much fiction as How Green Was My Valley. That was some imagination he had. Well, Frank, I guess you now see that writing what you can learn can be just as powerful for a novelist as writing what he or she knows. I do see that. And it's with that knowledge that we'll finish today's endnotes on the novel How Green Was My Valley by Richard Llewellyn. Ted, thanks for coming in. You're welcome. I also want to thank my Novel Conversations readers, Joan and Patrick Andrews. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. Today, I had a conversation about the novel How Green Was My Valley by Richard Llewellyn. Until next week, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. Hello, everyone. My name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com.
This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.